Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. to make yourself comfortable. You can even open the door. Yeah, from here. Wow. Line 15 of the Yoga Sutra. I don't even think we'll make it through the whole line. But there are, you can actually pass out uh, copies if you want. Um, The wise, that's you. Just in case you thought that was somebody else. The wise see that all of our experience is characterized by dukkha. The word dukkha uh, is a Sanskrit word and is usually translated plainly as suffering. But it doesn't really mean suffering. It means trying to get out of your suffering. Um, I like to translate dukkha as unsatisfactoriness, um, lack, sometimes pain and stress. And a wise person, that's you, uh, sees that our experience leaves a trace. And if we look at the traces of our experience in our lives, we'll notice that it's tinged with this uh, uh, trait of dukkha. The, the word dukkha, there's, there's disagreement about this, but, but most scholars or etymologi- etymologists, thank you, all I needed was a nod to get me through. Um, uh, agree that, that the word actually uh, originally referred to the hub of a wheel, 
where the axle was off kilter because the hub was bent. Have you ever been on a bicycle where one of the spokes is off and it just knocks the hub out slightly and then you go down a hill? That's dukkha. Um, have you ever had a, a day or a decade feel like that? So this, this is the experience of dukkha. And, and for those of you who have been studying also the Buddha Dharma, we know that the first noble truth or the first ennobling truth of the Buddha is that uh, uh, we should fully know suffering often mistranslated as uh, get rid of suffering. But this is kind of interesting that that the Buddha taught that to be wise is to fully know suffering. And I think a lot of people hear that and think that is the most pessimistic (laughs) philosophy you could ever uh, um, encounter. But I think those of us who are coming to practice because we've experienced suffering, uh, we know that what actually really creates suffering is trying to get out of your suffering, especially trying to get out of your suffering prematurely. This doesn't mean wallowing in your suffering or identifying with your suffering, but really to fully know suffering. If we're all interconnected, which nowadays is all anybody talks about, you don't have to convince people of their interconnectedness, even though we all forget. Um, If other people are suffering, we also suffer. In a way, it doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about the goal of the path as being the end of suffering, because how can you, you end your experience of suffering if other people are suffering. And I think this is where we left off a couple of weeks ago. But in a way, this is what Laura was talking about last week also. The United States, which is the freest country on earth, has more people incarcerated per capita than any country on earth. And if they're suffering, We're suffering. Inside and outside depend on each other. Canada has more people uh, in uh, mental institutions per capita than any country in the world. So we're connected. We're connected. There was actually an amazing study done a few years ago uh, that I've been trying to get my hands on where some doctors, psychiatrists, anthropologists, um, and a few different kinds of therapists um, got together and did a decade-long study on schizophrenia. And uh, the question was, is schizophrenia something that just happens in Western industrialized countries where we sort of know it the most? Um, and you know, without going into all the details, the, the answer was no. Uh, schizophrenia occurs everywhere, uh, quite, and, and quite equally. But that Western industrialized countries were actually the worst at dealing with schizophrenia. 
Um, of course, there are certain great leaps we've made with medication and how that can help people live um, in a more social way, except that only works if the society can accept uh, those people. And the, the outcome of the study was that because we live in a kind of consumer, producer-driven uh, culture, if somebody drops out of being able to consume or produce, uh, like, for example, mothers. Do you notice this about mothers? That, like, mothers go out into the world and people say, what do you do? <laughs> like, oh, well, I'm a mother. Well, what else do you do? <laughs> um, or uh, you've got a teenager, and they, they, they don't want to go to university anymore. Or they don't want to get a job. And, like, what do they do? So if you can't consume and produce, we don't have a place for you. And uh, one of the things that happens with mental illness is that we can't consume and produce at the level that uh, our city demands. And so there's no place for you to go except to be put over there. So this culture was saying that, uh, or sorry, this, this, this study was saying that, you know, one, one of the, the problems in dealing with schizophrenia is that the society is not helping the person heal because there's no, no place for them. And I'm sure many of you have had this experience in your life where you're afflicted with something, depression or you know, a kind of terrible anxiety or even mental illness. And the first thing you feel is really cut off. Like the, the city just seems to go fast and the, just even the notion of participating in it can seem just an impossible hurdle. And that's a downward spiral. Um, that can be quite fast for many, many people. What does this have to do with Patanjali? Well, it actually has everything to do with Patanjali. Because what Patanjali is saying is that the wise person sees this level of interconnectedness. And I think sometimes this can happen to us when we're open, that maybe... I know for me as a young kid, I hung out a lot in a mental institution because that's where my uncle lived. And I remember uh, not thinking those people were so crazy because some of their behavior, I kind of knew it in myself. And uh, one of the reasons why I got into psychology was because I, I loved the writing of Carl Jung. Because Carl Jung had a way of talking, especially in his early work, about mental illness where he related it to how he could actually go into his unconsciousness and find that kind of insanity. And then it created a kind of compassion for how to listen to the fantasies of people who were having psychosis. So, for Patanjali, so much of our suffering comes out of two things. One is this idea of a separate self. This idea that we're a separate self and those people that are in prison, those people in mental institutions, those people, um, the G8, or the, you know, those 20 or those 40, they're separate. They're not me. And that kind of us and them perception um, is not harmonious uh, to dialogue and to creativity. It's too easy. It's too easy. 
And while it's important to do, so important to do, um, we also have to see when we're doing it. And the same is true at an internal level. When we parcel off parts of ourselves and split them off as objects, we create suffering because we turn them into selves also. You know? And this is a kind of schizophrenia. I mean, one, one of R.D. Lang's great ideas of, of how schizophrenia operates is that you split off a part of yourself that's so repressed um, that it's so far away from the ego that it actually builds its own ego. And then you have like three or four of these. Um, and then you have these characters who are actually living characters. And when they're on, you know, like when they're upstage or in the foreground, they can become the main ego. And uh, I think we can look at that model in ourselves. How, you know, when you repress something, um, it's kind of like putting something in the compost and it gets smelly and disgusting, really. And one of, one of Freud's ideas about psychic energy is that the same amount of energy you use to repress something, um, that thing uses to come back again. To come back again. And Jung has this wonderful line where he says, and if, and if you don't realize that, this is Jung commenting on Freud, it's like falling into a hole backwards. If you've ever fallen into a hole, <sighs> the second cause of suffering is not just creating a separate self, but realizing that creating a separate self is a defense mechanism to avoid um, impermanence. Uh, the Buddha said, for example, that you know, one of the main ways we see suffering is that we don't get what we want. We're separated from what we love. Has anybody ever had the experience of being separated from someone you love? That's a kind of mental illness. <laughs> or getting what you don't want. We could also add getting what you want. <laughs> Sometimes can also create a kind of suffering. But when you're separated from somebody you love, why is that suffering? You know, what's, what's suffering about being separated from somebody you love is change, is impermanence. That, that the stories you have or your image of what your life looks like or what your career looks like or what your body looks like or how your health is like this linear thing. I, I come every Tuesday night and in two years I will be able to do those backbends. <laughs> but like bodies don't work like that. So to really open to change, to impermanence. And the wise, Patanjali is saying here, sees that in everything there is this characteristic of impermanence. And when you try and take a mood or a part of yourself or a part of the culture and fix it, then you create permanence in an impermanent reality. 
And I don't know about you, but if I look at any conflict in my life right now, any conflict, pretty much, I can find how in that conflict there is a desire to create permanence. If there is dukkha associated with it. Wanting things to be fixed. Wanting things to be a certain way. What I want to point out here between the lines is that Patanjali is suggesting not that we overcome our suffering, but that we just see the way it's built into experience when we're creating permanence in a dazzlingly contingent reality where everything is changing. You know, I, I just had a, we were on retreat last week for four days uh, silent retreat and and one of the things I was really thinking about uh, during the retreat and after also um, is just how there seems to be like these phases of practice and I hate talking like this because I don't like talking about things developmentally but it does seem like the first seven or eight years of meditation practice if you practice every day it's kind of anxious and you look at your mind and it's so busy and your body is so uncomfortable when you do long periods of sitting and every once in a while it opens up and there's a little moment of stillness but it's only little <laughs> and it's only enough to give you a taste of why it's worthwhile but the motivation to practice shouldn't be the taste it should be the fact that your mind is insane. <laughs> you know? and, and that you don't actually know how to work with it. Um, and this goes on for years. It really does. And I think the, those first years of practice, it, that whole phase is just realizing that we don't, we're not skillful. And, and, and our reactivity is so high. Mm -hmm. And then we start to see in those years, I think, how, how our reactivity also affects others around us. Even, we probably don't even see most of the ways it affects other people. And then I think the second phase of practice is really starting to get some concentration. <coughs> where you, you have enough technique in the body that you actually find that sometimes you're just concentrated. What Patanjali calls samapati, or I like to think of as coincidence. <laughs> that, that, that if you set up the right conditions by coincidence, concentration will arise. For those of you who are trying to concentrate, it will not arise. But over time, when you just keep practicing, concentration starts arising. And then something happens, which I think I would call this the third phase, which is then when you're concentrated and there's calmness, you start really seeing how your mind works. And this, of course, is, call, is called vipassana. Pasha is an I, or in modern terms vipassana 
which literally means insight. And it's not like insight where, oh yeah, you know, things are changing. Things are changing, I, I lost him or I lost her or I lost my bike. But, but it's, it's, it's insight from this place of stillness of how your mind really works. And you actually see the way that the mechanism of the mind that is scared of really opening up to our existential ground of <coughs> connectedness uh, keeps trying to frame whatever's moving through awareness so that it's fixed. I know what I am because I know what that is. You, you have an object. You know, we always think of like subject-object, but we start to see that the reason for making objects is actually to create a subject. And uh, I encourage those of you who are in that first phase of practice who struggle sometimes, why should I sit? You know, why, why should I sit? We, center of gravity starts again in September. Why should I sit? Because to, to really start to see impermanence, to really get insight into how this happens, lightens up that muscle in the mind that grabs things and other people and viewpoints. And it changes us at a very deep level so that when we move through the ordinariness of the world, um, we're moving through without sticking so much. And then I think this leads to a life of more creative engagement with what's really going on. And this leads perfectly to the koan for the evening. Any questions, though, before we lead perfectly into the koan? <laughs> Okay. Take a deep breath. So this is from the Wu Men uh, Koan. It's uh, case number 19, uh, which is usually translated as ordinary mind. I love this one. This one's, it's so good. Uh, it has to do with everything we've been studying in this second chapter, particularly the asmita, the storyteller. Nan Chuan is passing, in passing, was asked by Chao Chu, what is the way? What is the way? So just asking in passing, so this is not a formal interview, um, just asking, what's the way? And of course, the way is the Tao, or in Sanskrit, Marga, the, the path. What, what's, what's the path? This is very similar from a lot of koans I've chosen, where the first question is, you know, where are you from, where are you going, or how do you enter the way? What is the way? What is the way? Not where do I find it, or how do I get there, but what is it? Nan Chuan replied, ordinary mind is the way. Ordinary mind. 
then should I direct myself towards it or not? I love this. He gets the answer. What's the way? And he gets an answer. Ordinary mind. Like I can say to you, don't try and concentrate. If you just keep following the technique, concentration will happen. And one of you will put up your hand and say, so, so should I try and do that? And then they become self-conscious or not. So this is what's happening here. What is the way? And remember, this is in passing, right? Ordinary mind is the way. What is it? It's ordinary. This is it. Then should I direct myself towards it? Pause. Or, or should I not direct myself towards it? Nanshuan answered, when you try to direct yourself towards it, you go further away from it. Chao Chu persists. How will I know it's the way unless I try for it? Nanshuan responds, the way is not something one knows or doesn't know. You can say that, I think, about your whole life. It's not really something you know, and it's not something you don't know. This idea that we have of trying to know what our life is, is completely absurd. <laughs> Yesterday, my son wore this beautiful button-down shirt. I said to him, you look so handsome. No reply. <laughs> and then he was wanting some cereal. <laughs> I thought about this. You know, what, like, if someone says to you, you know, you really look actually awful in that, in that dress. Or you look beautiful. And we're like, oh. <laughs> but actually, the I that is receiving, can't, how does it receive that? Oh, like I, like what, like, do you see what I'm saying? But, and so, so what's trying to be pointed towards here is that, that ordinary mind is the way. Because when the self pops up there and tries to make it special or in reference to itself, it's not ordinary. Another way of saying that is if you practice and things start happening, because when you do meditate, you get powers. You become intuitive. Uh, you become bad in parties, and, which is a power. I have this new practice that I do now when I go to parties. I find the most awkward person, and I just go sit next to them. Um, if you practice and you feel like something about what you're doing is special, then you should go for an interview with your teacher. So let's go through this again. How will I know it's the way unless I try for it? Unless I strive for it? Nanchuan responds, the way is not something one knows or does not know. 
It's not something you attain, and it's not something you not attain. Then he says, knowing is an illusion, and not knowing is just blankness. If you truly attain this ordinariness without effort, this is a nice play, you attain it without effort. What are you attaining? Ordinary. <laughs> How can you insist on right and wrong? If you truly attain what you can't attain, which is, in other words, you're saying, if you just wake up to this, how can you say right and wrong? How can you say right and wrong? Of course, as we sort of joked about a few weeks ago, there's a commentary to this. And this is how the commentary goes. I actually like the commentary just as much as the koan. A hundred flowers in spring, the moon in the autumn, a cool breeze in the summer, snow in the winter. If trivial matters do not clutter your mind, it's a good season. <laughs> Ordinary mind is the way means your normal mind is fine. The problem is that we're trying to resolve something all the time. We're trying to, uh, like, I think it takes a lot of years, especially those of us who are like psychotherapy junkies, when we're meditating to not try and fix our emotional problems. Especially, for me, one of the things that I have the hardest time sitting with is a situation that's unresolved. Whenever there's something in my week or something that's unresolved, in meditation, that's what I go to all the time. And I remember one day realizing, what if you just open, Michael, to unresolvedness? <coughs> to feel what the feeling of unresolvedness is like. And then I remember it just being unresolvedness without all the drama on top of it. And then underneath it is really desire for pleasure. The pleasure that comes from knowing something is smooth. But if we're all connected, things cannot just be all, you know, wheatgrass and endorphin rushes and <laughs> Santa Monica. <laughs> Where there's no poor people. <laughs> and it's interesting, you know, in most parallel translations, the word for Tao that's often used in Sanskrit is uh, uh, bodhi, uh, or awake, uh, which actually comes from the root bud, uh, like where we get the word Buddha, which actually means intelligence. 
So it's not some kind of like blank. There's no. It's not like a relativism, but it's 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 a it's a clarity that comes from being able to really open to what's happening without contrasting it, without trying to resolve it. And I think we all know that when you really open to something in this way with your whole body, a response comes that's particular to that situation that can't be rehearsed. And, I mean, this is what every artist is waiting for, is a response to a particular uh, opposition, a particular juxtaposition that you can't know from this side. It's like the door opens, but from the other side. And this is what's mysterious about creativity. It's what's mysterious about editing and writing and choreography and painting. How do you sit in, how can someone paint a painting? I mean, nowadays with the history of painting, you stand in front of a blank canvas. How can somebody paint a painting? This is a great column. Uh, Dogen had something to say about this. Here's a commentary on a commentary. Listen carefully. And you, you can just get, Dogen is so clever. I know a lot of us have studied Dogen, but he just, he nails it every time. He does it again here. In the spring, cherry blossoms. So he's following the pattern of the last poem. In the summer, the cuckoo. In the autumn, the moon. In the winter, the snow, clear and cold. And then he just leaves it. <laughs> and and I, I've always loved this. Dogen does this all the time. Because you're waiting for him to sum up and go, this is it. He does this thing where he just points you back at the ordinary. And a lot of scholars have commented on this and say that this actually really influenced Japanese poetry after because in Japanese poetry, there are very few metaphors in Zen poetry where if there's a cloud, it's just a cloud. And it's not a metaphor for your thoughts. Like in Indian poetry, like a bird flying by is just a bird flying by. And this frustrates people, like, oh, the bird is the, you know. Um, but a lot of the Zen poets weren't doing that. They were actually not using metaphor. And you can see Dogen doing this here, too. It's like opening to a dream you've had and not interpreting it. If you have a dream and you wake up in the morning and the dream is important, you'll know. If you sit with it, you'll know. But if you take out the dream dictionary, you just, you kill it. How's your attention span? I, 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 just, I just want to go a little deeper with this, but I just want to make sure that we're together here. Impermanence, ordinariness, suffering is not allowing for the ordinariness of change. Questions, comments? 
Yeah. I got stuck on the right and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. If I do something that creates suffering for somebody, yeah, knowingly, yeah, how can that be part of this ordinary? Yeah. Existence? Let's give an example. What's an example? Well, I say something to somebody I love that's mean. Yeah. It's unskillful. I had this crazy thing happen last week. I have to admit this. Okay. So it, it was after the night, uh, two weeks ago, it was after the night of, I don't know what koan we were working with, something. And um, uh, everybody left, and I went to, to make some quinoa, and I forgot about it, and it started burning. And this place filled with smoke so fast. <laughs> Meanwhile, I had this digital recorder plugged into my computer, and I was downloading the, the talk onto the computer. And I never, I can't listen to these things. So uh, I just download it with the volume off. But the volume was on the loudest. So my voice was really, really loud, but so calm. I guess it was a moment I was speaking really quietly. And the place was filled with smoke. And then somebody <laughs> called and said something to me that upset me so much. And I lost my temper. And I started, I really, I didn't yell, but I raised my voice. <laughs> and as I was, I was looking around at the smoke, I was kind of yelling at this person. And behind me, there was this voice that was so <laughs> And so... And it was kind of this example of schizophrenia, if you will, <laughs> where, you know, even when we look at people who've done really awful things, if we can really look at the conditions that they were in when they committed a crime or even just said something stupid, if the person on the other line realized what was going on for me in that moment, they might have kind of toned down their reaction to my reaction. But they didn't know. So part of what we mean by not right and wrong is not that there's no place for right and wrong. But our first way of meeting something can be open enough that we can recognize that whatever is going on, even in ourselves, when anxiety shows up, nobody is always anxious. It arises in conditions, and the conditions change. We do something bad, and usually it's not that it's bad, it's that we were ignorant. You know, we weren't really attentive to what was going on. And it motivates us. So it's not that there's no right and wrong, but it's that we have to push through that in situations so that we can have a more ethical response, not just based on good and bad, but based on really seeing something and really being caught just in an in a idea. That's so hard to do. You know, some of you were here a few years ago where there was a, a journalist who used to come practice here who talked about how many bombs uh, he had witnessed on buses in Israel. <clears throat> so he's, he'd cover, you know, these explosions over and over again. And he talked about after a while... He just, like, he knew how to write the story for the paper. And it would just, you know, he'd send, and he just felt like he was on automatic pilot. And then he said that, he, so he had gone on this meditation retreat um, here. He had done another meditation retreat in India. 
And then he, so this was his two months off. Then he came back to Israel, and there was a bomb that went off um, in a building not on a bus. And he stopped, and he said he saw actually in front of him the newspaper, the story. And he realized that as this explosion was happening and people were being injured, he was already seeing how he was going to write about it and how numb he was to this atrocity. And it completely changed the way he started writing. And he actually no longer works for a newspaper. And now he does writing about conflict and how to meet conflict in more creative ways. And I always found his story so inspiring because it was like he had this moment where he saw his own viewpoint and realized he didn't just have to go that way. And suddenly, a whole range of viewpoints opened up. You know, nowadays, we can critique the Dalai Lama in so many ways. But it's so interesting how, when he talks about the Chinese government, he always says, you know, my friend's the enemy. <laughs> my friend's the enemy. And he's playing with people, right? He's saying, like, this is the enemy. I'm not going to call them my friend. This is the enemy. And... How can I connect with them? Like Thich Nhat Hanh wrote the wonderful letter to George Bush, where Thich Nhat Hanh couldn't sleep for weeks um, during the Afghanistan, uh, the beginning of the Afghanistan invasion, and um, had this realization that if he can't sleep, George Bush probably can't sleep. <laughs> and so he wrote this letter to George Bush saying, I'm guessing that you probably don't sleep well. <laughs> and I, I really hope that uh, you can do what you need to do so that you can find ways of sleeping. And uh, this is like a public letter. You can, it's really wonderful. And it's basically strategies about how you can sleep, get to sleep a little bit better. <laughs> so I think sometimes we do need to split in us, like in those situations of good and bad, and talk to ourselves and say, like, whoa, am I really looking at this situation in, in, in an open way? Michael, yeah. I have something to share that I just came back from Montreal where my mother is very ill uh -huh. and um, her body is completely compromised uh -huh. and all the people around her are the same. Yeah. But what I really had on this trip, which was so effective mm -hmm. for all of us, is that I didn't need to fix anything. Yeah. And I didn't need to see it as bad or good. We just were uh -huh. together, yeah. being, being one, being in that moment uh -huh. together. Yeah. And the response, even though, of course, I can't change her suffering, yeah. But there was such a, on, at moments, such a deep and sweet reaching out, like she can barely move her hand, but with the one finger that she could use, she was stroking mm -hmm. me or mm -hmm. saying beautiful things mm -hmm. to me, which was quite different. Yeah. And I felt it was so directly that I didn't need to make her feel better. Yeah. I just needed to be present. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, and sometimes, you know, especially if someone's our parent, or they're dying, or they're ill, or what about, you know, people when their children are ill? Or people when they're, they're like parents when they're teenagers depressed? And, you know, they've been sitting on the couch for eight months playing video games. And um, we want to do something. And sometimes we don't realize how wanting to do something actually contributes mm -hmm. um, to a kind of separation in their relationship. I had a friend who said to me the other day, I haven't seen his son in years, and he said, you know, I had this realization after he had been watching TV for months that one day you have to get off the couch. <laughs> so helpful to hear that. So now he tells all his friends who have teenagers, leave them alone. Like one day they will have to get off the couch. Here's another verse in response to the koan. Students of the way do not understand the truth. I love that. <laughs> Students of the way don't understand. Do you know people who are like really good spiritual students? He's kind of poking at that. Clinging only to meditation consciousness. The basis for birth and death is endless. Which is another way of saying everything that arises passes away. And I love this line. Idiots <laughs> refer to this practice as their original self. Idiots, that's you and me. <laughs> We, we, we get a taste of impermanence, we feel open, and then we ruin the whole thing. We say, this is my authentic self. <laughs> and he's poking at that. He's saying, that's not ordinary. You know, and you know that this is the era where you get lines like, what is Buddha? Shit stick. <laughs> um, how do you reach the way? Have you washed your bowls? Have you washed your bowl? Someone comes into the monastery, I want to find the way. And the teacher says, have you washed your bowls? Have you washed your bowls? This summer, Center of Gravity will be closed, except for you know, probably about 15 of you who are going to be uh, joining uh, us on a 30 day. We're practicing for a month. And um, we sit every morning. Uh, we have a 45-minute period of sitting. Then we have a break. Then we do asana practice, then we have a break, then an hour of chanting, and then lunch, and jet fuel. <laughs> and then in the afternoon, the days alternate between anatomy and philosophy study every day for a month. And um, sometimes we get ideas like, I'm going to get into this intensive, and I'm not going to be ordinary anymore. I'll finally be special. And this is just, like all these ways we split off. And actually, for any of you who've done long-term study, Monica just came back from a month retreat. It's so mundane. 
And yet some part of the mind wants to go over the whole thing and go, this is really, really important. So this summer, I want you to practice every day. For those of you who have a meditation practice and those of you who don't, the way you do this is you set up a cushion, and I encourage you to have the proper kind of cushion, zabuton, zafu, or bench, chair. And you sit and you set a timer where you can't see it for 30 minutes. And that timer is the container. It's the perfect mother. And the timer is going to hold you in whatever comes and goes in that 30 minutes. And the most important part of the meditation is the timer, that you really trust in the timer. So that if you have a good set, the bell rings and, oh. And if some days you're agitated or lonely or angry or in pain, you learn how to work with it. Some days it's good for 29 minutes. <laughs> and the last minute feels like two hours. <laughs> and that's why you put the timer out of sight. And you really work with what shows up in body and mind. The ears open to sound, the focus on the breathing. Letting the inhale come and go, and when you're distracted, coming back to the breath and allowing the breath to soften. And just putting your body there every day. And on days when it's difficult in July, just know that there's a group of 30 of us that are doing this practice every day. And how many people, when they've really wanted to look at the way they are experiencing lack and discontent, have not gone to read another novel or see another movie. Th those are all helpful things. But to really go past the things that the culture gives us because I actually think culture is amazing, the way it helps us see ourselves. But I actually think that some of that cultural material can also bring down the level of consciousness, too. And so how to find this place that undercuts what we usually go for and really find insight into how things really are, the, the inner workings of things. Boredom how to really work with boredom. Maybe it's happening right now. <laughs> when is he going to shut up? Like, every week I pay money. And I'm going to actually start putting in a less Donna. So he maybe gets... I'm going to read the call on one more time and then we'll call him then. What is the way? Nanchuan replies, ordinary mind is the way. Chao Chu asks, then should I direct myself towards it or not? Nanchuan answers, when you try to direct yourself towards it, you go away from it. Chao Chu persisted. How will I know it's the way unless I strive for it? 
Nanshuan responds, the way is not something one knows or does not know. Knowing is an illusion, and not knowing is blankness. If you attain the way without effort, it's vast and boundless. How can you insist on categorizing in terms of right or wrong? Let's finish chanting. Good, it's almost over. <laughs> Feels like we just got started. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm happy. I think my life is good. It's not so good. <laughs> Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Awaken. Do not squander your life. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free of their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. May all beings be free from every form of dukkha. Namaste. Namaste.